So the, um, the topic for tonight is um, getting under the words. Getting under the words. Um, this is emerging out of um, maybe about a month's vacation for me, which has been really lovely. I went home to see family and I had a conversation that um, sparked this a bit. I was talking to, talking to my teacher and she told me about this time when she was younger. She grew up in Southern California. Anybody from Southern California? Yeah. She grew up uh, close to Long Beach. And uh, she told me, she was remembering the first time that she ever went snorkeling that was not in a swimming pool and not in like the cloudy bay. Uh, she told me it was in some kind of like channel, maybe Catalina Channel or something. I don't know if people snorkel there. But anyway, she tells me about this experience. She's got the mask on and um, she's snorkeling and she remembers like l looking down and instead of in the, cl the cloudy bay or in the, the pool where she can see six feet down, she looks down and it's like 30, 40 feet. She's like, ah, fish, kelp. It's like there's, there's so much there. There's so much there that she couldn't see that was right underneath. And in much the same way, I want to I invite us, the, the, the purpose for the talk tonight is to invite us or point us in, in the direction of what's beyond words, what's under words, or what's, um, what are those realms of experience that are so vast that um, your favorite preposition goes here, beside, above, below, the words and stories we tell ourselves. So we'll talk a little bit about intention. We'll talk a little about our regular practices, namely Zazen, and then a little about retreat. Briefly, I'll probably ask you a lot of questions. So starting off with a quote from the Japanese founder of this tradition, Dogen, in this, um, this writing he calls, Within a Dream Expressing the Dream. And he says, the path of all Buddhas and ancestors arises before the first forms emerge. It cannot be spoken of using conventional views. I'm going to have to sit on that one for maybe 20 years to get it, to get it completely. But wow, what I'm hearing tonight is him pointing us before, what's the experience before a word arises? One of these things is intention. So why do we practice? This was one of the seeds of this talk. Uh, this question, why do we practice? And I imagine if I, if I asked each of you, there would be some common threads, but all of, us come, all of us come into a practice like this with our own meaning, our own purpose coming in the room. One of the commonalities, I say with a smile, a friend of mine who lived here for a long time said, no one comes to Zen Center because they're on a winning streak. <laughs> I think he says that a lot for comedic effect, but you know, I've known some, I've known some really real winners who made their way to San Francisco Zen Center. 
But uh, it, something it allows us is to be complete people and to present our whole selves, including what is my intention for being here. In the tradition, we call this intention our way-seeking mind, the, way, the mind that seeks the way. But sometimes it's mysterious. Sometimes we know why we seek the way, and sometimes we really don't. Um, there's this exercise we have where um, someone, in a, someone in a period of training will kind of tell their practice story to the, the whole group. I thought that would be a cool thing to introduce to this community sometime soon. We did that a bit with Tim before. But one of the things that comes out of this practice of articulating your path of arrival to practice is you realize, people realize, it's not so easy. You kind of have to like do some picking through your old memories, thinking about your intentions. Oh, why did I do this? And how did, what were the twists and turns, the forces inside and outside me? And what's interesting about that is this, this story that's so fundamental to us, we end up fabricating it after the fact. And all this lived experience has been going on all the while. So why do we practice? I came across this article by this, this uh, well-known translator recently. His name is Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he calls it a challenge to Buddhists, which may or may not arouse your sense of pride. Bhikkhu Bodhi opens this article by saying this. So each morning, I check out a number of internet news reports on websites ranging from the BBC to Truthout. Reading about current events strongly reinforces for me the acuity of the Buddha's words, that the world is grounded upon suffering. Almost daily, I'm awed by the enormity of the suffering that assails human beings on every continent, and even more by the hard truth that so much of this suffering this is the part I want to highlight, springs not from the vicissitudes of impersonal nature, but from the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion raging in the human heart. So here Bhikkhu Bodhi is pointing out the connection between what's happening right in here, our intentions right at the core, and uh, what we might call the, the wilds of what we read in the news. As he's, connecting us, as he's connecting us to greed, hatred, and delusion in the human heart, I'm instantly reminded of the opposites and the possibility. Like what can we cultivate in the human heart? Like what's our intention for practice? Is it generosity? Is it compassion? Is it wisdom? We give these intentions names, but they live in us before their words. One last thing about intention. Um, I meet a lot of people who are making decisions. Decisions in their lives, you know? They're making, they're making a choice about their career, their um, relationships, um, where to live, what to do, you know? So this, this is commentary territory for all of us, I think. And 
I think the decision-making process is really closely related to the, that same process that articulates our intentions. But what I'm, what I'm hoping, without unpacking too much, is that the closer we can live to our intentions, the closer we can sort of dwell with them and abide with them and notice them and nurture them, then the more clear is that decision-making faculty. One way of assessing the decisions we're making, of course, is to look at our intentions. We're really good scenario makers, you know? You can like run 12, 12 scenarios and like weigh their various outcomes. It's a very, very powerful function of the mind and can get us kind of carried away. Um, one of my Dharma friends calls them our head movies. And it was pretty startling to realize that that's not, that's not us. Like when you see the picture of you in your mind, it's not you. That was like, that was a big wake up. It's something, it's valuable, but it's like a, it's like a waking dream. We'll get more, we'll get back to more about this. But how do we stay close to our intentions? The Dharma point here is that before every action, before every word, intention happens first. Intention, then word, intention, then action. Um, and it happens moment by moment. So we can settle back. You can stop listening to me for a second. And check in with yourself, sitting here, just listening. What intention am I bringing into the space? Just a touch into that faculty. What's there? Could be soft. And then when the, when the stories are going, when the head is going, what are the intentions under the stories? What sort of momentum are we setting into the mind with the intentions of our stories? Is it these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion? Or is it compassion, generosity, wisdom? So, this is intention. It's one of the ways we can look under the words. Another is in our very regular everyday practice, our zazen. Before the first forms emerge, we set zazen. Something about living in a community or being part of a community in addition to our zazen, our practice is the practice of listening, listening to each other. Listening community member to community member, peer to peer. And I have to, uh, I have to think, I have to know that when, when you're listening to one another, when you're listening to someone you really care about, can't you, can't you sense more than the words that they're telling you? Can you feel something else happening there? There's something really beautiful when a, when a communication is really honest and you can, you can feel how broad and big the truth is in what's shared, including the story and beyond it. There's this whole being there that's so big so there's listening to the others, listening to others, there's listening to ourselves. One of the ways we do this, of course, is to pay attention to our stories up here. 
Stories have this interesting feature, though, that they're slower than experience. Our experience is happening such that when, by the time the story arises, it's already outdated. So it's like, stay in touch, stay in touch with reality. You kind of have to let go over and over and over and over. So now a word for stories, in, the, in terms of listening to ourselves. The power of journaling for integration. It is, it's so, is this a practice that anyone does? Yeah, journaling, yeah. I don't know if anyone, a couple of years ago, they were, or a couple of years ago, I, I heard for the first time of this book called The Artist's Way, and they have this practice called The Morning Pages. It took like, it took me hearing about this for years, and a good Dharma friend being like, you will do this, before I picked it up. And it's, a, it's pretty amazing uh, one characteristic, I tend to notice, like, first two pages, just meh. I could, I could just burn them. But there's something really fabulous that happens on page three, where it's like the thought under the thought under the thought gets articulated, and I didn't even know it was happening. What is that? But it's one of these ways we can listen to ourselves in a very full way but somehow it's under the words. Like, the words I was served, pages one and two, are just up here. And then page three, it's like, all those fish and kelp, it's really beautiful. Just listening to others, listening to ourselves, being listened to by someone else. Really humbling and difficult to see the water that we swim in, you know? Um, our tendencies. It's so, uh, so easy to like see our tendencies toward greed, hatred, and delusion as just the world. Oh, that's them, and that's my environment over there, without seeing what our contribution is. And this is where that trusted friend comes in. I was, um, I was telling a story recently to, to uh, one of my trusted, trusted others telling a story about some uh, difficult interpersonal thing that had happened. I was, I, was a I was upset. I was upset while I was telling the story. And she stopped me. It was the softest, you know? It was so compassionate the way she did this. Um, as I'm like, I'm like gearing up to like tell the story a little more, she goes, Kodo, got my attention, you know, like broke, broke the spell for a second. And she said, is it more important right now for you to tell me about what happened or for you to be here with your experience right now? It totally flipped my frame. I was completely in the story and telling the story was like the most important thing. And then there was, there was this pause, and I was like, oh, yes. Thank you so much. Like, what's here? Oh, this, um, you know, there's sadness here. Oh, there's heat, there's, there's tension. I can feel trembling in my, my limbs, you know? What was underneath and beyond the words got to be, got, got to, got to be part of my experience. Thanks to this trusted other. This is Zen community. This is what we do together. And then when we're alone together, 
not talking, sitting zazen, sensing our way under the words, this basic practice over and over, knowing what's happening and releasing it, knowing what's happening, releasing it, not adhering to anything. In some ways, our words and stories, you see this in zazen, our words and stories and concepts, are they're like glue that hold together our thought worlds. And practicing this letting go over and over again, just coming back to what's here, to raw sense data, it puts us back in touch, not only with reality, but also with emptiness, with the fact that we're not as fixed and stable as we think we are and neither is anyone else. That the, the you, I imagine, is not actually you. And the me, I imagine, is not actually me. We're so much more than that. But under words. So our ancestors point us back to Zazen over and over again for this reason. And the Buddha points, uh, points us to the, some areas of experience in particular. Bring your experience under the words. Bring it into the body. Be with the body. Bring it into the felt sense. Bring it into pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Under the words. Quality of the mind. Under the words. So there's some challenges to this. We can just name that. What if I can't get under the words? What if like it's words 90%, everything else 10%? Gosh, I'm in, like in the spirit of this talk, I'm inspired to have everyone go to the window and look at the full moon. <laughs> it's just rising over the over the house next door. We can let go of words and look at something amazing. Wow. Well, I'm glad we did that. There's a full moon ceremony in the morning if any, any of you want to celebrate. Um, Challenges. I thought of rumination. There's plenty of really good advice about rumination online, so I'll skip it. <laughs> um, I also thought of doom scrolling, you know? It's like we've conditioned this so well, or now it's like this so well. And I was characterizing it for myself, like feeling into that impulse of, of something like um, satisfaction is just, just beyond. It's like just out of my reach. Things I learned on vacation. And when I was consider, considering how to, how to like think about this, how to address it, I, was, I listened to Zach's talk from last week. Was anyone here? Yeah. He said this beautiful thing about Sazen that I thought was the, it was the perfect medicine for our, our um, relationship to story. And to, to paraphrase him, it's more or less, 
We hold our explanations, hold our stories and our words, hold them lightly in the broadest possible context. That's, that is sensing the entire realm of experience without like trying to cut off or push away or argue with or do something, do something with or for the world of story, but simply to realize that they're held in something much, much bigger. Much, much bigger. And that can be a start. I have another dear one who, uh, who used to continuously consume the news. And now he sends me uh, text messages with photos of his art. That's what he's doing with his time now. I get these unbelievable like, pencil and charcoal drawings of, um, say, like an, an eye, stud, eye study. He'll do this close in, it's immaculate. And I think, how many hours was that? He's looking at something now in a new way, beyond these words, beyond the stories. The last couple of minutes, I want to I want to say something about the fact that our our practice, our practice of zazen, our practice of spending time beyond words, abiding beyond words, we can do this in different doses. Your practice might be five minutes of meditation a day, maybe it's an hour a day, and then from time to time we have these opportunities to do something where we're just totally immersed in the world beyond words. We have sashin have a retreat, things like this. And there's a way that the practice, the so simple practice of zazen, when it's done, when it's done in these sort of like concentrated, immersive periods, can really open something for us. And that opening is pointing to something really deep within who and what we are. There's a, there's a certain simplicity to it, clarity of intention. It's far from simplistic, but it's very, very simple. It's almost like what, what emerges when the heart is training itself in listening really deeply? Like what comes out of you? What do you become? And that's the, that's the nature of that sort of immersive practice. In the spirit of this, I wanted to share with you one very short poem that um, I heard for the first time on a, on a retreat in 2016. It's a poem called The First Words. And I found it in a, bookmark that, in a book that I received while I was at Tassajara. It was really lovely. And the poem goes, the first words got polluted, like river water in the morning, flowing with the dirt of blurbs and the front pages. My only drink is meaning from the deep brain, what the birds and the grass and the stones drink. Let everything flow up to the four elements, up to the water and earth and fire and air. 
Thanks to Paul Heller for sharing that one with us. This is from, that's a poem from Seamus Haney. And it may as well be uh, an ode to Zazen, in my mind. So... In closing, to quote one of my other teachers, what can you say about yourself without words? And what can you hear and sense in someone else without words? It's like all of us are calling each other to awaken all the time. And the encouragement, of course, is that there's so much available to us through practice. There's so much that can blossom in the heart. So please, please, carry on. <laughs> um, I hope this, uh, this time together and seeing the moon and me saying some of these things can be something of an invitation to you know, spend a little time, spend a little more time just abiding beyond words, looking beyond words. And when you find yourself caught in the midst of things, just hold it in the broadest possible context. Sense your way wide. Just be really big. What else is here? And the close in response to Bhikkhu Bodhi pointing out the harshness in the world connected to our own hearts. These are the words of a poet named Amiri Baraka. He said, clean out the world for virtue and love. Let there be no love poems written until love can exist freely and cleanly. Thank you all very much. <laughs>